Let's jump right into our passage for today in Matthew chapter 5. Hopefully you'll turn there with me. Uh, We are in our series entitled Upside Down Kingdom as we learn to... Uh, as we learn what it means to be a citizen within God's heavenly kingdom. And today we're going to be looking and talking about enemies. Now, I don't know about you, but I have enemies. Do you have enemies? Uh, some do, some don't. I, I, I met someone the other day that said, I don't have anybody that doesn't like me. And I went, oh, now you do. <laughs> okay. Um, but it's, it's true, we all have enemies. And I, I think about enemies, and, and I, there's not like some rival that I could think of, but I, I, I kept thinking of enemies and trying to think through real just difficult situations, and I was thinking of um, my, one of my favorite novels came to my mind as I was thinking through this. It was The, the Count of Monte Cristo by Alexander Dumas. Has anyone ever read that book or maybe seen the movie? Okay. Okay, it's a great story. It's one of the all-time classic stories, and let me set it up for you. It's about a guy named Edmond Dantes. And uh, it's set in Napoleonic France in the 1800s, and he is a young man. He's uh, with a kind heart. He's good-natured. He's smart. He doesn't have any education. Um, he is not interacting with any of the high society. He is not privileged in that regard, but he's got a, a real pure heart, and he's got a great work ethic. And uh, he finds himself as a sailor on a boat, and through circumstances, he ends up being appointed captain of this boat. As a very young man. Now, much to the consternation of his friend, um, Ferdinand. Now, Ferdinand, um, Ferdinand is very jealous of Edmund because he, first of all, Edmund has this really beautiful fiancé named Mercedes that, Ed, and that uh, Ferdinand is very sweet on. And he's very jealous that here's this young guy who has no privilege, no upbringing, and yet he has been exalted to this position. Now, Ferdinand does have that. And he, he, is, uh, he feels like he deserves it. And this young guy gets exalted over him. So he comes up with this plot and he impute, brings all these other guys into this plot to bring Edmund down. And Edmund has no knowledge about any of this. And what's happened is, is that he gets arrested and then he is put in prison in this notorious uh, prison known as the Chateau d'If, which is like an island penal, penal colony, kind of like Alcatraz, except in the 1800s. And the only way of escape is through a body bag basically. And uh, the life goes on without Edmund. Matter of fact, Mercedes ends up marrying Ferdinand and goes on, and they have this kind of privileged life. And Edmund is just rotting in prison where he meets this priest who's known as the mad priest. This guy's crazy, and he's accused of stealing this vast fortune that no one knows where it is, and the priest doesn't talk about it. Well, while they meet, and they come up with this, they start, I mean, come up with this way of trying to dig themselves out of this prison. And as they dig, the, the priest begins to teach him and train him how to, how to fight with a sword. Everything that a gentleman would have known, how to deal with math and finance and business and educated him in language and banking and all of these different things that he learns and how to speak properly and how to conduct himself with, with nobility. And so he's learning all this throughout this 14 years. Well, as they're, they're digging, there ends up being an accident, and the priest gets mortally wounded. And then he confesses to Edmund that he did indeed steal this money, and that he's telling him where the money is. So Edmund then, uh, through, I mean, through just sly, nefarious substitution, decides to, um, when, the, when the men come in, the guards come in to put 
the priest in a body bag after he dies. They walk out, and then Edmund substitutes himself in that body bag. Takes the priest out, puts himself in. They carry him out, throw him over the water. He ends up escaping, and he goes off on this journey to get this money, and he finds it. I mean, this is just a huge amount of money. And then he concocts this plan to become this count of Monte Cristo, is where the money was. And then for the next several years, he deliberately and meticulously puts together the pieces of his plan to bring down every single person who was guilty of putting him in prison. And either through sheer humiliation, by, steal, by taking their money, by, by even uh, leading them into prison, he wins. It's a great story. And all of us kind of resound with it because I think there's a part of us that knows what it's like to be wronged and want revenge. Right? You ever wanted revenge on someone? Someone hurts you and you start plotting on how you're going to get them back? I think we've all been there in some way, shape, or form. Someone has hurt us so bad at the core of our being and we want vengeance. And I think that re- resonates with people. That's why it's interesting enough that there is a, an ABC drama called Revenge that, did you know, is actually based on the Count of Monte Cristo, set in modern times with the female lead. It's the point of it. Because there's a thing about us that wants revenge. We want our enemies to go down. We want to see them suffer. We want to do the dance, and we want to sing, we are the champions, right in their face. Right? We do. We want to talk serious smack. We want to see him suffer. We do. But is that the way of Christ? I feel guilty now. (laughs) Because that's not what Jesus wants. That's what Jesus says. Love your enemies. What? The person that hurt me so bad that struck me to the core of my being and right now you have someone in your mind. Someone that hurt you so awful. And you say they are unforgivable. No, it can't be. See, God calls us to forgive the unforgivable because he has forgiven the unforgivable in us. And he calls us to a different way of life. Now, I'm not saying I have done this perfectly because I haven't. I'm learning just like you are. But God calls us to love those who hate us hate us. And right now, if you take a stand for Christ, I guarantee people are going to come at you with all kinds of labels. Intolerant. Bigot. Hypocrite. Hater. You are this phobe, that phobe. Well, I'm saying, why are you a Christophobe? Because there are. There are people out there that are afraid of Christians. Afraid of what the message of Christ means. So people say to me, why do you hate this and that? I don't hate it. Why do you hate me? Why are you a Christophobe? Why do you, why do you have to slander our reputation? Why do you have to come after us? Why do you have to say that? And you might know someone at your workplace that does that. Or even in your home, or in your family that has come after you, that has sold your reputation, that won't let you speak, that always puts you down, that is constantly making you feel marginalized and small. You ever had that? Could be a parent, could be a sibling. It could be a spouse. It could be your employer. It could be an employee. It could be uh, someone that you know at church. God forbid. How are then we to interact with them? Because there's a part of us that says we don't want to be doormats. You can't walk, all, walk over, uh, all over us. It, you know, it's interesting. Even in the American flag, the early American flag has a, has a serpent coiled up. And what's it say? 
Don't tread on me. Don't, enter, don't walk all over me because you're not going to be able to do it. So Jesus is saying, no, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm calling you to something different, something higher. And that's what we're going to look at today. Because if we are citizens of this heavenly kingdom, we are not to respond in kind for evil for evil. But when evil comes to us, we are to respond with good. And it is against all of our natural fleshly inclinations. That's what we're going to look at today. But before we go any further, let's pray and ask for God's blessing on our time together. Father, we come before you not knowing what to say. We think of those who have injured us, those who have hurt us, those who are truly our enemies. And Lord, everything within us wants vengeance, thirst for them to be punished, and a thirst to see justice done. Lord, help us to see who you are, what you are calling us to, and that you are the one who will dispense justice in your own time. Lord, help us to know how to play out, to put into practice the things and the truths that we are learning through your word. Lord, help us to remember that our flesh has been crucified with Christ. Help us to truly take up our cross and live within this resurrection life that Jesus calls us to as the resurrection life of Christ is being exhibited in and through us. And Lord, where we have failed, where we have blown it, where we are holding on to grudges and past pains, helps to release it unto you and receive the peace that comes only from you. Be in our time together today. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's look at our text starting off. In verse 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Well, Jesus starts off just basically dealing with the human condition. And it is an age-old question. And he is shedding light on an age-old question. That's the first point you need to write down. He is shedding light. He is exposing it. And he's dealing at the core and the fabric of who we are. Because, see, when we look at the scriptures, we have a tendency to see just the spiritual and totally removed from everyday life. And some have even even have thought with the Sermon on the Mount that it was too idealistic to put into practice. And Jesus is saying, no, this is how life is to be lived as a citizen of the kingdom of God. And I'm going to shed a light on this. And he's, he sheds light by quoting a, a passage from Leviticus when he says, you shall love your neighbor... He said, you shall love your neighbor. Now, it's interesting that he just quotes that part of it, and then he adds, and hate your enemy. Now, the scripture is true that it does say love your neighbor, but many different groups and sects took the opposite um, tact. They, they looked at neighbor, and they defined it very specifically. Remember, Jesus says, who is our neighbor, right? And that means everybody, basically. But in, in this period of time, there were certain groups that said, our neighbor was basically those who looked like us, who sounded like us, they were Jews, they were practicing Jews, and they, they were from our kith and kin. That's who our neighbor is. Everybody else, we're to hate. Matter of fact, the, the Essenes, or those at Qumran, were, which were a, a very specific, pious Jewish sect, they called to explicitly hate one's enemy. To hate them. And Jesus said, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. You've heard this taught, this tradition. But I say to you something entirely different. He's calling them to do something different. But this, this old problem basically had two parts to it. First of all is, how do we treat our enemies? How do you treat your enemies? What do you do with your enemies? Do you gossip about them? 
Do you pray imprecatory prayers of God's justice down on them? What do you do? Do you ignore them? Do you slander them? Do you try to bring them down? How do we treat our enemies? And then those who do us evil. Those who do us evil. Now, it's interesting. We are so good with having other people being beneficiaries of salvation until it comes to our enemy, and then we're not so happy. Because we don't want them to be in heaven, basically, because our hate is, so consumes us. How do we respond when haters hate us? That's what Jesus is saying. He's shedding a light on an old problem. How do you treat those who hate you? How do you treat them? How do we treat our enemies and those who do evil to us? Well, he says this. Let's look at what verse 44, 43 and then 44 you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now that's an odd thing. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You know, I don't think that's our natural inclination. I think our natural inclination is a little bit like Christopher Hitchens. Anybody ever heard of Christopher Hitchens? He's one of the world's leading atheists. Was. Was. He passed away in 2011 in December. And uh, he wrote several different books. He's part of this, what is known as the New Atheist Movement. And as I was researching this sermon, I came across this um, film that was made. It it was basically a debate between Christopher Hitchens, this world-renowned atheist, and a pastor from Moscow, Idaho, a guy by the name of Douglas Wilson. And they uh, were followed around for a few days as they debated back and forth and how they interacted with one another. And then a film was made about it called Collision. Now, I I was looking uh, a little bit about the film, and I found these outtakes um, in in listening to some of their interactions, and one of them was about loving your enemies. Now, it's interesting what Hitchens said, and I think he represents what most of us think. He says this about loving your enemies. He goes, this I will not do. I know who my enemies are. At the moment, they are theocrats with a homicidal and genocidal agenda. You can go and love them if you want. Don't love them on my behalf. I'll get on with killing them, with destroying them, with erasing them. You can love them. But the idea that you ought to love them is not a moral idea at all. It is a wicked idea. And I hope it doesn't take hold, especially on you seemingly serious and decent young people. What a disgusting order to love those people. Destroy them. Wow. That's chilling. But I think that's where many of us are. If we're very, very honest with ourselves, we want to see them destroyed. Let other people be kind to them. As far as we're concerned, they're outside of the kingdom of God. And Jesus is saying, no, no, I have something totally different. You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies. Now, it's interesting. There's different words used for love within Scripture. There is phileo, which we've talked about several times. It's brotherly love, a love that you can have for another person I can have for Dennis and Nydia up here or Jack or Andrea. It's that type of love. Then there's eros, that's the erotic love, that's this uh, uh, amorous love that a husband and wife can have for one another. And then there, then there is storge. This is the love that you have for your children and your children have for you. And this is a different type of love. And every parent kind of knows this because your children inevitably ask you the question when they're little, do you love me more than mommy? Do you love me more than daddy? And your answer always is, no, it's different. It's different. It's a different kind of love. It's totally different. 
That's the storge love. Now, it's interesting. He's using the other form, this other form of love, which is agape. Now, we've all heard this word. If you've been in church for any period of time, if you haven't, then this might be new to you. But it is God's unconditional love. God's love for mankind that he pours out on us. That's the agape love. And he's saying that I want you to have this agape love, this unconditional love for your enemies. Now, it's interesting, Scott was up here when he was doing communion, he quoted Romans chapter 5, verse 8, says this, but God shows his love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God loves us even when we are evil and in rebellion toward him. Hard thing to do. God does it perfectly. See, what Jesus is calling to is, is calling us to adopt God's pattern of loving others. Adopting God's pattern, that he is saying that I want you to love like I do, and that how I have loved you. See, we have a tendency to love those who are lovely, that look like us, that sound like us, that root for the same teams as us. I mean, it's easy to love another Chicago Bear fan. I, I mean, Green Bay is like my Nineveh, okay? But it's like that in football, you know, you have these rivalries. You know, I remember seeing a commercial on ESPN one time. It was a great commercial. It had this, this uh, girl and this guy, they were kissing on a couch, and she was wearing an Ohio State jersey, and he was wearing a Michigan jersey. And it said, if it wasn't for football, this, would be, this wouldn't be disgusting. Because <laughs> the point of the matter is, is that we have these rivals with one another, and we hate them. I mean, I saw the special uh, recently on Auburn versus Alabama. Okay, everybody knows like this is one of the most, I mean, you're talking about crazy hate for one another in these football towns. So bad does this Alabama fan hate Auburn that he went, and there's these things called Tumor's Corner, and have all these trees there, and he went and poisoned these hundreds of years old tree, and he calls into this radio station, and they said, that's a crime. He goes, ask me if I care. I mean, this is just how bad it is when people take these rivalries and, and there's this hate that comes up. And we know that. We know what it's like to hate something so much. But God's saying, no, no, no. I want you to adopt my pattern. I want you to love like I do because love conquers all. I'm reminded of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Now, you want to talk about someone who could hate people. This is... Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor theologian during World War II, and he spoke out against Hitler. Um, eventually, he's imprisoned, and he loses his life for it three weeks before the Allies came and liberated the camp that he was in. He wrote a great a classic book called Nachtfolge in German, and it means the cost of discipleship. And in it, he's talking about the Sermon on the Mount. And this is a man who truly tried to live out what he preached and taught. And he said this, and I want to share this quote with you, because he's saying that, Love conquers. He said, how does love conquer? By asking not how the enemy treats her. The love for our enemies takes us along the way of the cross and into fellowship with the crucified. The more we are driven along this road, the more certain is the victory of love over the enemy's hatred. For then it is not the disciples' own love, but the love of Jesus Christ alone, who for the sake of his enemies went to the cross and prayed for them as he hung there. Remember that? Where he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Not bring the justice. Bring the fire. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. In the face of the cross, the disciples realized that they too were his enemies, and that he had overcome them by his love. 
It is this that opens the disciple's eyes and enables him to see his enemy as a brother. He knows that he owes his very life to one who, though he was his enemy, treated him as a brother and accepted him who made him his neighbor and drew him into fellowship with himself. The disciple can now perceive that even his enemy is the object of God's love and that he stands like himself beneath the cross of Christ. God asked us nothing about our virtues or our vices, for in his sight even our virtue is ungodliness. God's love sought out his enemies who needed it and whom he redeemed worthy of it. God loves his enemies. That is the glory of his love. As every follower of Jesus knows, through Jesus he has become a partaker in this love. That's pretty impressive. He has become a partaker in this love. Now, what does that mean for us? What does that mean for us? It means that we need to be kind to the good and the bad, and that involves us taking greater responsibility taking greater responsibility. Now, I want us to go back to our text and notice what Jesus says. He says in verse, the latter part of verse 45, For he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Now, it's interesting there. What he's talking about is, is that God, it's what theologians call common grace, that God gives common grace to all people, that he doesn't just wipe them off the face of the earth, even though he has the full right to do so. Because man has rebelled against him. He's saying that God is kind and loving. Now, we, we just kind of glance over this verse. Okay, he brings the rain, he brings the sun. But to a Middle Eastern mindset, that was massive. Think about it. This is an agrarian culture where without the sun and the rain, you were to starve to death. If there was famine, you're dead. Your family could die. Your children could die. Your spouse could die. Your, I mean, your, anyone could die. I mean, you, were, you didn't have the ability to just go to the grocery store like we did. I mean... You knew the snow was coming, and you did what? You went to the grocery store, and you stocked up a little bit. Made sure you had milk, had extra stuff, had everything there, so you're ready to, to do it, to, to ride it out. Now, with God, he's saying here, I mean, not just, excuse me, he's not saying here, but think about it. If we were living in that time, we didn't have that ability. You couldn't just go to the store and stock up. You were completely dependent upon what was going on in the weather. I mean, I'm always checking my phone going, is there going to be school tomorrow? It's so cold. I want to know what the weather is going to be like. My daughter, she wakes up. She's like, can I see the phone? I need to see the weather for the day. Okay, when I was a kid, I just looked out the window. My daughter's like, well, at 11 o'clock, it's going to be that cold. Maybe I should wear this at that. I'm like, what? Just put on a coat. Go outside. You know? I mean, but then they they were completely dependent upon everything that was going on. Weather-wise. They're saying that God is kind. He is benevolent. He is completely good. He is treating people in a good way. No matter how bad or how evil they are, he gives common grace to people, to those who don't deserve it. He is giving them and showing them love. Love. We have a responsibility then to love difficult people. Did you know that? Not just to condemn them, not just label them, not to talk about them, not to slander them, but to love them. You know, it's interesting. James chapter 4 brings this out. James says, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, to him it is sin. You know, there's two types of sin. The sin of commission, the sins that you do in action, and the sin of omission, the good that you know that God has called you to do and you fail to do. Now, you might say, well, how do I know that? Well, let the Holy Spirit put his finger on it. 
When the Holy Spirit puts his finger on it, that's what you know you ought to do. And when you fail to do it, you're going to feel the conviction that you know you had sinned. And that can mean anything. It could be doing good. It could be giving to someone. It could be for praying for someone. It could be witnessing to someone. See, people say to me, really? How can, you, how can you say I could fail to pray for someone? You see this in Scripture. It's interesting. Samuel talks about this in 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 23. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. Wow, I'm indicted. Is there someone that you're ceasing to pray for, that God's called you to pray for? That God's called you to love an enemy, someone that you can't stand? Are you praying for them or are you gossiping about them? When their back is turned. Are you loving them? How are you treating them? That's what God's called us to do. Someone may, maybe there's someone that you need to confess to. Someone you need to make restitution of. You know, we preached in Matthew 5 a while back. I shared this in my small group this past week. Last week, I got ready to preach. I was at home on my knees. And God kept bringing something to my mind that I hadn't thought about in over 20 years that I need to go back and reconcile, and I rationalized why I shouldn't. I mean, I came up with excuses why. Sometimes, I, and sometimes you have to, to really do tests to make sure it is from God. And in this instance, I knew it was from God, but I was trying to rationalize it away. And God said, you need to go make this right. And I said, no, I'm not going to do that. And I felt I stepped in the pulpit, and I didn't have power. I wasn't a clean vessel, because God had brought something to my attention that I was failing to do. Had a good conversation with a brother. And on Monday morning, got off my knees, and I made up my resolution. I contacted, and it was people, not just one. I contacted them and said, I'm sorry for something that I did you may not even remember 20 years ago. Forgive me. That wasn't an easy thing to do. But it's necessary because, see, God won't let it go. There's no shelf life on conviction. No expiration date. God brings conviction, though. He wants you to deal with it then and there. And there's maybe something that you need to deal with now, that a responsibility to others that you have failed to do, that God's calling you to do. Now, it's not easy. It's humiliating. But it's freeing. And it brings peace. Because God is showing, you are showing that you are obeying God rather than men. And you could care less about your reputation. You care more about being right with him. What do you need to make right? What do you need to seek restitution for? God has given us a greater responsibility toward others. Now, let's look at verse 46. Now, it's interesting. We do have a tendency to treat others how they treat us. It's this perverse way of looking at the golden rule. We treat others the way we want to be treated, but if people treat us a bad way, we feel that we are then entitled to treat them badly in return. Just like with my kids. Why did you hit your brother? He hit me first. That's why we do it. But Jesus says, and he draws attention to this. He says, for if you love those who love you, not a big deal. What reward do you have? It's not a big deal. Do not even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same? He's saying that that we have to love the way God loves. Anybody can love those who love them. That's not hard. But he is taking us, and he's saying to us, I want you to go beyond the law of reciprocity. That's a big word there. But that's what he's saying, going beyond reciprocity, meaning that don't just treat them how they treat you. You set it right. You don't respond to evil with other evil. I want you to go beyond that. 
That's what Jesus is saying here. Don't just, look, everybody else does that. Even evil people do that. What's the big deal? You think you're going to get rewarded for that? No. You have to be the bigger person. You are the one that has to take the step of faith. Because we have a tendency to, to ratchet up. You know, as I was studying for this passage, I came across a great sermon by Martin Luther King Jr. Great, great message called Loving Our Enemies, delivered in November of 1957. And he gives this illustration that I think sets it up really well. He says, he goes, uh, my brother and I were driving one evening to Chattanooga, Tennessee from Atlanta. He was driving the car, and for some reason, the drivers were very discourteous that night. They didn't dim their lights. Hardly any driver that passed by dimmed his lights. And I remember very vividly, my brother, A.D., looked over and in a tone of anger said, I know what I'm going to do. The next car that comes along here and refuses to dim the lights, I'm going to fail to dim mine and pour them on, uh, and pour them on in all of their power. You ever had that? Is people not dimming their lights? So you flash your lights, you keep it. They're going to keep their lights bright? I'm going to keep my lights bright. And that's what he says. But King responds, he says, I looked up at him right quick and said, oh no, don't do that. Be too much light on this highway and it will end up in mutual destruction for all. Somebody's got to have some sense on this highway. Somebody must have sense enough to dim the lights and that is the trouble, isn't it? And as all of the civilizations of the world move up the highway of history, so many civilizations, having looked at other civilizations that refused to dim the lights and they decided to refuse to dim theirs. And Arnold Toynbee, historian, tells us that out of the 22 civilizations that have risen up, all but about seven have found themselves in the junk heap of destruction. It is because civilizations fail to have sense enough to dim the lights. See, sometimes we have to, to back down from that evil to keep that peace. Not letting them walk over us. That's not what it is because it takes a stronger person to bring that power into control. That's what meekness is. That's what Jesus did. And that's what he's calling us to do. So we have to dim the lights to bring peace. But do you know what happens when we do? When we love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us, it results then in a deeper relationship. That's the next point. Deeper relationship. For those of you who are trying to guess, I changed you up by putting a D first. Deeper relationship. We become more like God. Look at verse 45. So that you may be sons of your father, who is in heaven. Now, it's interesting enough here, it's not talking about that you will become sons. The point of the passage, as D.A. Carson, great scholar and theologian, has noted, is not to state the means of becoming sons, but the necessity of pursuing a certain kind of sonship patterned after the Father's character. The idea is, is that we become more like God, and when we become more like God, our joy in God increases. See, by following God, by crucifying ourselves, by considering ourselves being crucified with Christ, by taking up our cross, we let the life of God be fully manifest in us. You have to remember something. We are made in the image of God, but that image in the fall was distorted, marred, if you will. It's like, it's like what happens when you, when you have a, a milk crate, or a milk carton, a gallon of milk, you bring it home, and you, you, were, you were shopping, and you notice that a part of that gallon gets dented. Right? Gets dented in. What happens? You got to get that out, right? I don't know if you've ever had it when it's completely empty and you had it dented in. What do you got to do? You got to blow in it to force it out. See, by, by surrendering ourselves to Christ, by considering ourselves crucified with Him, and by letting the resurrection life of Christ fill us, that image is put back into place. 
When we are living the life that God desires us to live, the life of Christ is more manifest, and our character is changed, and we're transformed from the inside as the Holy Spirit is blowing out and remaking that image in us. He's helping us to be more like Christ, and we come into a deeper relationship with God. We get to know Him more intimately. And we discover more what he wants for us. And we discover not those, just those outward sins, which we knew were pretty obvious. He gets down into the inner core of who we are, molding us from the inside out. Because, see, God wants our heart, not just our outward conformity, but inward transformation. That he's transforming us from the inside out. But we have to be that clean vessel for him to blow the spirit into by taking in the things of God. And then that knocks those dents out. And we become the person that God desires us to be. We grow in a deeper relationship. But that's not all. Notice verse 46. See, when we do this, we're also rewarded for doing so. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? He uses the word mithros. God will reward us. The idea is that there will be reward in heaven. God is saying that there is a definite reward. If we are doing then this and living this life that God wants us to do, and we're pursuing this by loving our enemies, God sees it. God sees. See, many of us aren't, aren't content with that. We want to see it. We want to make sure it's there. We don't believe God. We lack faith. And God is saying to us, no, when you do this, when you entrust yourself wholly to me, there is definite reward that we give back to him. Now, when we love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us, God sees. He takes notice. And he begins to transform. Now, where does all of this lead, though? Why does God do this? Because it will hopefully lead our enemies to repentance. It will hopefully lead them to repentance. To make our enemies our brothers and sisters. See, by, by loving them, by loving them, by allowing God to deal justly with them, either at the end of time or by having them come to know the Savior, justice is applied. See, we think that we have to take justice in our own hands. We have to remember, just because justice is delayed, it doesn't mean justice is denied. God's timetable is not ours. We want instantaneous vengeance. God's saying, no, no, no. You don't want them to suffer apart from me because you don't realize the horror of what it is. That's why Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. And even Stephen, the first martyr in the church, as he is getting, they're stoning him. He prays, Father, do not hold this sin against them. Because he understood what it was like to face eternity apart from Christ. See, we want our enemies to come to know Jesus. God desires even our enemies to come to know Jesus. What do you think the point of Jonah is? Of hating someone so much that you wanted their destruction, not their salvation. And God is saying, no, you shouldn't want their condemnation, but their transformation. As they receive my salvation. That's what God desires, that transformation, that salvation. So God desires we lead him because he doesn't delight in the evil of any, I mean, doesn't delight in the destruction of anybody. Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 23, case in point. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that they should turn from his way and live? God, God wants them to come back to him. Romans chapter 2, verse 4 
Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? He doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. He's kind to us because he desires us to repent and come to the saving knowledge of him. Come to the saving knowledge of him. We want that image of God restored and increase in joy. Remember, we are made in that image, but God is trying to remake us in that image of his son and knock those dents out. As the Bible says in Romans 8, 29, it's God's desire for us. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. He wants us to look like a little Jesus. Many Jesuses. That's what he wants us to look like. God desires we become like him, which is why he said, and look at verse 48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. See, God desires that we be, his, that we be seeking his perfection. Seeking his perfection. Now, this is, Jesus isn't laying something down where he says, you have to be perfect to be received by me. No. He's saying is, you must aim at perfection. You must aim at being like me. Not being satisfied with just good enough. I'm reading a great book right now. Uh, it's called Good to Great by a guy named Jim Collins. And in the book, he says, the enemy of greatness is the good. Where we're just content with good. And not with great. What, we have something more that God is calling us to. And, and that's what God is saying before us. I don't want you just to be content with sliding into heaven. I want you to be pursuing me, to be more like me. To be growing in the knowledge of me. See, that's the problem with so many different churches. They think they go in, they sign the membership, and then I'm done. Or I get baptized, I'm finished, I'm, I'm all good, I don't need any more. That's a biggest joke. God is saying, I want you to become more like me. And grow like me, and that's never done. Until glory. I want you to continue aim to go higher, to walk closer with me. To grow in holiness. To know what it means to surrender. To grow in humility and sacrifice so that the life of Christ might be manifested in you. See, the word for perfect is teleos. and means fully developed, consummated goal, mature, and from going through the necessary stages to reach the end goal. It's the root means reaching the end, reaching the aim, seeking it. It's like, it's like telling a, a football player, don't run into the end zone. That's what we do in many different churches. You can just run side to side. No, you need to make progression down the field. And that, that, the end zone is glory. And I can't rest until I cross that, fin, that line, that goal line. I can't just be walking around and content with taking a knee and moving inches. There's times we're going to move inches, but there's times that we're going to move way down the field. That's what God is saying. I want you to keep moving. Aim at me. That's the end goal. Don't be content with where you're at. Grow, seeking my perfection. We are to seek to be more like God in several ways, but we're going to focus on three. First is this. We need to be more like God in our character. Character. And you know it's through interacting with our enemies that our character is forged. We learn a lot about ourselves. Helen Keller said this. Character cannot be developed in ease and quiet. Only through experience of trial and suffering can the soul be strengthened, vision cleared, ambition inspired, and success achieved. Or as Billy Graham put it, Fruit doesn't grow on the mountaintop, but in the valleys. 
That's where we find the most, most God honing us. Max Lucado called it being on God's anvil, where we are being hammered and sharpened to what he wants us to be. God beats us down and allows these enemies to draw us and push us to Jesus. As I was reading, Abraham Lincoln talks about how he had no place else to go but his knees because the counsel of the day seemed inadequate because of the realities that he's faced with. That's when we go to God because he is forging us to bring us into closer relationship with him. That's what he desires. That's what he longs for. And that's where we find our fullness of joy of which all these other earthly pleasures are just small, infinitesimal foretastes of. Where the fullness of that joy can be seen in him and and experienced in the knowledge of him. So God desires us to grow in our character to be more like Jesus and also in our conduct. Conduct. You know, it's easy to respond like for like. It's really hard to take the pain and not respond and do good to those who hurt us. But that's exactly what God is calling us to do. Look at chapter, Romans chapter 12, verse 14 through 21. Bless those who persecute you. So when somebody says, you're a jerk, I hate you. God bless you. I, go, I dare you. Do that. God bless you. I guarantee they're going to go, what? what? Bless and do not curse them. Okay, here's just an easy way. This is a good exercise. When you're driving, someone cuts you off, bless them. All right, that's a good way to warm up for you. Bless you! Okay, try that. That's a good way to warm up. Because I guarantee that when I hear the word curse, the first thing I think about is Chicago traffic. More Christians have cussed in Chicago traffic and cursed God and man in Chicago traffic. Okay? Bless them. Just, just so you know. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate, associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil. It's our conduct. But give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all, if possible. So far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, and this is where we get to the really heart, to the crux. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by, by so doing, you will weep, heap burning coals on his head. Do not, become over, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Overcome evil with good. God desires us to be Christ-like in our character and in our conduct. Lastly, God desires us to be Christ-like and to be more like him in our compassion. In our compassion. See, we're to help all people. That's what God's calling us to do. That's why he says, and we see in Matthew chapter 25, we're to love the unlovely. We're to give Drink to those who are thirsty, food to those that are hungry, clothe those that are naked, visit those who are in prison, to take care of the widow and the orphan in their distress, to love the foreigner, to welcome them, to be in our compassion to those who look and sound differently, sound different than us. We're to be compassionate. As I mentioned before, that's the whole pur- purpose of the book of Jonah. God is calling 
Jonah to go and preach to those who were far off, to those who were his enemies, and Jonah wouldn't do it. He got on the boat and ran in the complete opposite direction. Now, I always wondered, why did he, why did he get on that boat to Tarshish? Where is that? And, I, and I, I thought, I knew it was in the other side of the world in his mind, but I found a map this past week as I was reading, um, and I, I came across a map of what people thought the ancient world looked like. And literally, where he was destined, it was completely in their map, which was very limited, it was the other side of the earth. He wanted to go to the other side of the earth rather than see his enemies become beneficiaries of God's salvation. And God is saying, Do I, should I not have compassion on them? Don't you have compassion? To hurt for them, to love them, to desire them to come to the saving knowledge of me, to return not evil for evil, but to return evil with good. As I was studying for this message, I couldn't help but think of Martin Luther King Jr. and what he went through. He was a man who truly loved his enemies and suffered for it. And Dr. Benjamin Mays, who spoke at his funeral, he, he described all the stuff that he went through and how he basically had the right to hate his enemies, but he didn't. His house was bombed, living day by day for 13 years under constant threats of death, maliciously of being accused a communist, falsely accused of being insincere, stabbed by a member of his own race, slugged in a hotel lobby, jailed over 20 times, occasionally deeply hurt because friends betrayed him, and yet this man had no bitterness in his heart, no rancor in his soul, no revenge in his mind, and he went up and down the length and breadth of this world preaching nonviolence and the redemptive power of love. He knew that redemptive power. He knew that haters are going to hate, but he responded with a message of love. And in his sermon entitled, Loving Your Enemies, he talks about our responsibility to love our enemies. And he said this, and this is profound. He says, I think the first reason that we should love our enemies, and I think this is at the very center of Jesus' thinking. This, he's preaching on this passage we're going through, by the way. Is this, that, the, that hate for hate only intensifies the existence of hate. An evil in the universe. If I hit you and you hit me and I hit you back and you hit me back and go on, you see that goes ad infinitum. It just never ends. Somewhere, somebody must have a little sense and that's the strong person. The strong person is the person who can cut off the chain of hate, the chain of evil. And that is the tragedy of hate, that it doesn't cut it off. It only intensifies the existence of hate and evil in the universe. Somebody must have religion enough and morality enough to cut it off and inject within the very structure of the universe that strong and powerful enemy of love. That's a pretty powerful statement. He's saying, cut the chain of hate by loving. That's what we are to do. Love our enemies. Cut that chain of evil. Inject the power of God's love so that the love of Christ might be seen, felt, known, and marveled at that we might experience the joy of doing what He has made us to do. God will work wonderful movements and bring praise to His name when we do what He desires and purposed us to do. But it takes surrender. Matter of fact, when Dr. King was preaching on this message, the very first point was, he said, in order for us to do this, we have to take a look at ourselves first and realize the evil that is within us. And then we must confess that evil. We must surrender ourselves to what God has and be ready to suffer for His name. We must love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. So when haters hate, when we want revenge, God says, no, and trust yourself to me that I might transform you from the inside out. I'm going to make you into that strong person of such strong moral resolve 
and steadfastness that when people see you, they will marvel at what God has done as he transforms you and brings his name glory and you joy. Let's pray. Father, as we come and we think about this very important topic and as we've concluded walking through this passage, Lord, I am reminded of our own, our, our inadequacy at such a task that we can't do anything in and of ourselves without the Spirit of God empowering us. Lord, give us discernment on how to understand and apply. Lord, help us to love those who are our enemies and help us to love our neighbors. For as G.K. Chesterton said very often, they are the one and the same person. And Lord, I think of those who are going through really hard time in their marriages that they're really struggling, and maybe they even feel that their spouse is an enemy. I pray that you might bring reconciliation, that love might conquer all. That you might give discernment, prudence, wisdom on how to proceed. Lord, for those who find enemies not only in the workplace, but in their own home, or maybe in their school, I pray that you give them the moral fabric by the power of your Spirit, that the the life of the resurrected Christ might be exhibited and seen in their daily choices as they submit themselves to you for you to, by your Spirit, pull out those dents that they might truly love one another and love their enemies and pray for those who persecute as they look forward to the reward that is to come in the deeper relationship that occurs in the here and now. Lord, I pray that you touch them, that you touch us all, and that you use us In Jesus' name we pray, amen.